Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who He says He is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in Scripture and dependent on God's Spirit. Psalm 118 verse 1 says, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Please continue listening for today's message. Hello everyone, it is so good to be with you this morning. My name is Ian, uh, for those of you I don't know, as Bruce said, and um, I love Easter. I basically had kids for two reasons. One, so I could buy Lego, um, and two, so that I could eat Easter eggs on Easter. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not that child, I love my kids, okay. Um, but close. Um, Dylan and Irina, guys, these two left our community at the beginning of the year to go on ComServe and they've come back to visit us for Easter and then they're leading worship on Sunday. So let's just encourage them and thank them. That was amazing to have you guys back. I don't know where they are now, but thank you, thank you. And the rest of the band, thank you. Um, And we are now continuing our Easter series, Truly This Is The Son Of God. And we started on Thursday evening and then we went to Friday Um, morning and now throughout the day, we're just looking at Matthew's account of the trial, death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that this is an account that we have heard many times as we move towards the tomb this morning. It is not the first time that many of us have heard about the tomb. In fact, I find that this is a moment where even those of us who might attend church just once a year or twice a year, Easter and Christmas, this is a familiar story. In fact, I think for some of you who may have been dragged here by a family, it's Easter, you have to come. If that's you, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And you probably said to the person, I know the story, okay? He, he, he gets raised. I've heard it many, many, many times. I promise you, if that's you, we talk about other things throughout the year. We don't just talk about this story. And um, we are busy going through the book of Galatians. And I would love to invite you to join us as we, we go through the book of Galatians for the rest of this year and, and other things that we talk about and unpack the reality of the story that we are, are telling today and the implications, the impact that it has on our lives in very real and powerful ways. Um, We really do talk about more than just the death and birth of of Jesus. And, um, but as we move towards the story, as we move towards a tomb this morning, I really do hope that for every single one of us in the room, no matter how familiar we are with the events that took place 2000 years ago, that Jesus would freshly speak to us this morning of the power of this moment. You see, The tomb allows us to arrive at many different conclusions. The one it doesn't allow us to arrive at is indifference. And those closest to the moment, those who witnessed it, the the eyewitnesses, both um, those who denied that Jesus was who he was and those who believed who he was, were profoundly impacted by these events. And they either rejected him as a fraud and a fake, or they ended up worshiping him, found their lives transformed by him. And so I hope that no matter how many times we've heard this account, that as we hear it freshly this morning, that the Spirit of God would be at work through His Word and that we would find ourselves transformed and changed by the power of this message and its good news. As we look at the tomb, as we move towards it, we're gonna see that it was a a tomb that was sealed. We're gonna see that it was a sealed tomb that became an empty tomb. And we're gonna hear what the claim of the empty tomb really is. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive in. 
Father, I ask that as we come this Easter Sunday, we are reminded that we don't come to an empty tomb, but to a living God. And I pray that as we gather together and as we recount these historic events that took place, that you would speak to us, that you would change us, that, that God, these things that we can grow, so, these stories, these events that we can grow so familiar with would come alive to us freshly. God, that you would remind us who you are. You would remind us who you are and, and who we are in light of you and that you would speak to us about the importance of these moments in ways that leave us changed. God, we are a people who have been transformed by the power and the might of a living God. Would you continue to work in us this morning, we pray. Amen. So let's look at that first one. Jesus finds himself in a sealed tomb. So on Friday, uh, Jeff spoke to the, the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus and how it is that he found himself on trial and accused of being a false witness to his deity and that he was tried for treason and, and blasphemy and he got the worst of all punishments, crucifixion and that he walked this road towards crucifixion and that this moment of crucifixion had a profound impact on those who watched. As I've said, that, that as Jeff told us on Friday, there was a soldier, a guard, a centurion who had watched these events at the end of them when he sees how Jesus died, the, star, the sky darkening, the, the earthquake, the words that Jesus uttered in his death, found himself saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And the soldier who'd seen many a crucifixion finds himself declaring there was something different about these moments. And actually throughout history, throughout history, there have been many crucifixions. But there's only one crucifixion that has caused billions of people to start following this person called Jesus who was crucified. The crucifixion had a profound impact. The crucifixion of Jesus had a profound impact on history. And that was some of the stuff that we looked at on Friday. And, and there's a historian, Tom Holland. He's an atheist. He's a renowned historian. He's wrote, written many books. And he wrote this book called Dominion, recently wrote this book called Dominion, where he looked at the reality that um, the Christian faith, the Christian claim, this death and resurrection of this person, Jesus, has profoundly shaped societies around the world for centuries. And this atheist Christian historian often is said to say, we can't ignore the impact of Christianity. And so much of the empathy and compassion and things that we believe about human rights are birthed purely out of the Christian faith and it has had a profound impact on, on our society. And this is what he has to say about the crucifixion. The condemned man after his sentencing was handed over to soldiers to be flogged. Next, because he had claimed to be the king of the Jews, his guards mocked him and spat on him and set a crown of thorns on his head. Only then, bruised and bloodied, was he led out on his final journey. Hauling his cross as he went, he stumbled his way through Jerusalem, a spectacle and an abnomition to all who saw him, and onward along the road to Golgotha. There, nails were driven into his hands and feet, and he was crucified. After his death, a spear was jabbed into his side. There is no reason to doubt the essentials of this narrative. Even the most skeptical historians have tended to accept them. 
Fascinating that as he looks back on these gospel accounts and this account of Matthew and pieces together the crucifixion as a historian, he might not say that these are the divine inspired words of God, but he is very happy to say that they are reliable historical documents. And these events took place and that these documents are as reliable as any historical documents that you find. In fact, he goes on to speak about how the, the reality that these people who wrote these accounts were desperate for people to test them. How do you know? Well, they wrote them near the time of the events. They gave the place, they gave the time, and they gave them a whole bunch of people that they could go and speak to. Don't take our words for it. Go and speak to all the people that we mention. These accounts are people writing desperate to show that what they are saying is true and that they are not trying to hide anything. And most historians, as Tom Holland would say, agree. And so as we look at these accounts and we look at the, the crucifixion of Jesus, as we said, there was this soldier who found himself shaken by the events. And he declares, truly, this man was the son of God. Surely, this man was the son of God. Another translation. I wonder if there's a bit of fear in his voice or a bit of concern as a man who had witnessed many crucifixion and who'd probably crucified many people, he watches this one and he goes, there was something very, very different about this moment. What have I been a part of? Who is it that I've killed? What is it that we've done? And there's a bit of a hopelessness in his voice. There's a bit of a hopelessness in the statement as it's written in the past tense. Surely this man was Death has happened, he has been crucified. What have we done is the tone of his statement. And it's interesting because Jesus' claim, as Jeff said on Friday, was that I am the Son of God, I am the divine Son of God, I am God with you, I am the promised Messiah to the Jewish people and to the whole world. I am God with humanity, was his claim. And you have the soldier going, whoa, maybe that claim was true, but he's dead now. And not just dead, he was crucified. And the reality about crucifixion is that Roman people wouldn't crucify Roman people. It was too disgusting a way to die. Crucifixion was saved for those outside of the Roman Empire and the lowest of the low. So disgusting and vile it was is that civilized people wouldn't even talk about crucifixion. It really was reserved for the most vile and the lowly in society, those who'd done atrocious things and those who were discarded by society would be crucified. And so there wasn't just that Jesus was dead that made, it, made this claim and now he was dead, so how could the claim be true? It was that Jesus had been murdered or, or had been put to death in the most shameful way. And so now it wasn't just his death that said his claim was absurd, it was the way in which he'd been killed cast a huge shadow of shame over his death, over his claim. And any Roman who would have heard about this person, Jesus, and his claims would have said, well, how did he die? And they would have said, well, he was crucified. And they would have said, oh, well, those claims are absurd. There's no ways that anyone of divinity would ever be crucified and killed, let alone killed, I mean killed, let alone crucified. And then you would have Jewish people saying, there's no ways that our Messiah would be killed at the hands of the occupying forces of Rome. 
Tom Holland speaking to this reality about his claim and his death says this, divinity then was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a God could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to a particular people, Jesus' own, the Jews. You see, the way in which Jesus died didn't just cast a shadow on whether his claims were, it cast a shame on him. He must have been the lowest of the low and the most vile of the vile, and his claims must have been so absurd that the authorities of the time thought crucifixion was, he was worthy of crucifixion. And it's in this atmosphere, it's in this space that we pick up Matthew's accounts of Jesus, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So who is this man, Joseph? Well, we know that he is a disciple of Jesus. We know that he was part of the Sanhedrin, which is part of Jewish leadership, and that they had... They had not wanted, they had not consent to the actions taken against Jesus. We know that he had a high standing in society and had access to Pilate and was able to go and ask for the body of Jesus. He was able to leverage his influence and power to go and ask for the body of Jesus and give him a decent burial rather than see his body thrown in one of the mass graves of those who'd been crucified. And what we also know is that in this moment, all of them, Joseph and, the, and Pilate and the authorities and the guards, all believed Jesus to be dead, which is why Joseph went and collected his body and wrapped him up and put him in his tomb. There's sometimes the claim, and as we look back as modern society to Jesus, this claim that oh, maybe Jesus' wounds weren't so bad and maybe the resurrection claim can be accounted for by the fact that he just recovered. And the reality is, as you look at the wounds of Jesus, the fact that he was scourged, beaten, that he was carried his cross, that he hung on a cross, suffocated to death, and then to make sure he was dead, a spear was thrust into his side and that all the authorities, the pilot and, and the disciples who loved him would go and treat his body with, with tenderness and wrap it in, death, in cloth, declares by all historical account that the person of Jesus was dead. And the reality is that even medical medicine, uh, modern medical medicine would struggle to have revived a person who'd gone through what Jesus had gone through, let alone a man wrapped in cloth, put in a tomb, without any medical care, food or water. There is no denying that Jesus was dead. And there's no reason to deny it. Not even those who saw him as a fraud and a fake denied that Jesus was dead. And in his death, and in this moment in his humanity where Jesus was most out of control of what would happen to his body, there is something happening here that reveals that God is still at work, that God is still doing something. 
Why is it that Matthew in verse 57 says, there came a rich man? We know Joseph, we know who he is. Why does he add, there came a rich man, Joseph? Because Matthew knows the significance of Joseph having been a rich man. Because in Isaiah 53, there's this prophetic word where it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the death, birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there was this prophetic word in Isaiah saying that the Messiah would die next to uh, wicked people and that he would be, be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Isaiah 53 says this, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And Matthew knows there was this, this word that he would die beside with the wicked, the two criminals on either side, and that a rich man who now is revealed to be Joseph would come and take his body and lay it in his tomb. And he knows the significance of Joseph being a rich man as a fulfillment of this prophetic word that had happened hundreds of years before this moment. And there's this, this whisper, maybe a shout, God is doing something. God is doing something. And those who should have seen this moment, the religious Jewish leaders of the time who knew their scriptures, they had memorized them, they taught them, they were in them every day. Those who should have been most acutely looking out for and aware of what events would take place so that they could know that the Messiah had arrived were missing it. They were missing it. Look at verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a God of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb as secure, um, made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So again, the, the question that the authorities of the time are asking is not, is Jesus really dead? But rather, how do we make sure that he stays dead? How do we make sure that there's no fraudulent claim that matches the claim that Jesus made that he would be raised from death to life? How do we prevent that fraud from taking place? There's no doubt in their mind that he is dead and they are convinced in their hearts that he's a fraud and they are missing the very work of God in their myths. And so all the different centers of power, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman powers gather together to speak. And they say, well, if this man, if his disciples managed to fraudulently claim that he's been risen from, that would be from the dead, that would be really bad for us. That would be really bad for our, our authority and our power and our influence over these people. And ironically, you have the people of God conspiring with those rather conspiring with those who had occupied them and oppressed them to suppress the very work of God and the work, of God, and the work that God is doing. How is it that they found themselves in that place? It's human pride. The very people of God who knew the goodness of God, knew the promises of God, had the word of God, knew the ways of God, who were desired to enjoy the things of God, wanted all of that apart from God. 
That's human pride. In fact, that's what the Bible would call sin, is that humanity, we, we desire to have all the blessings of the kingdom of God, all the goodness of God, his creation, and all that he's created that is good, but apart from him, that we would be able to be the king of our own kingdoms, that we'd be able to benefit from the, the, the kingdom of God, but not have to have its king. And here in the moment, the very people of God, due to their pride and their desire to, to continue in their influence over the people, are blinded to the very work of God before them. And they conspire to use all the power, influence, and authority that they have to make sure that nothing changes according to Jesus's tomb. And so they send soldiers to the tomb to guard it. These are battle-hardened soldiers. These are soldiers who knew conquest. These are soldiers who knew war. These are soldiers who knew battle. And it's not just one or two, it's a platoon, a whole guard of soldiers, a platoon of soldiers are sent to the tomb. We're not talking about Chubb or ADT here. These are military trained men who are sent to guard the tomb. The fullness of their military might put in front of that tomb. And then the tomb is sealed. And what does that mean? Well, we know that the rock is there. That was part of Joseph's tomb. The rock is there. But a seal is set upon that rock. Something similar to what happened to Daniel when he's thrown into the lion's den. In Daniel 6, we read this. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And so you see Pilate seal the tomb with his signet along with the authority of the Jewish rulers of the time saying nothing will change concerning the body of Jesus. And their full authority is, is put on a, their full authority is marked on the tomb and saying to all people who would pass by, beware, the full might of the Roman army and the full might of Roman authority will come down on you if you try and change anything about this tomb. And so they'd, they'd make every effort to defend themselves and protect themselves from a fraudulent claim that Jesus has been raised from death to life. Which is why it is amazing that there is still a claim that the tomb is empty that at the center of history, there is still this moment that has had a profound impact on people for 2,000 years, is that there is a claim at all that there was an empty tomb when the fullness of all authority of the time was brought to bear to prevent that from happening. And so we read in Matthew 28, verse one. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. This amazing account in Matthew, eyewitness account of this is how it happened. And it's incredible that you have these women, Mary and the other Mary, disciples, not Jesus' mother, but disciples of Jesus. 
And it's beautiful to see how Matthew accounts that they were there the whole way through all these events. All the other disciples scatter when Jesus is crucified. They all run, they're all confused and they, they flee. But not these faithful women, disciples of Jesus. They're there at the crucifixion. They're there at the burial. And three days later, they're there to go back to the tomb. And it's not just their faithfulness that's amazing. It's the fact that Matthew in his account would declare that it's women who witnessed the resurrection. If he was desperate to falsify a resurrection, he would have had a few men go to the tomb and witness these things because in his day and time, the witness of men was far more weighty than the witness of women, more credible. And yet we see Matthew being honest to the reality of the events and saying it was these faithful women who witnessed these incredible moments. And what they witnessed was nothing short than the power and the glory of heaven stepping into human history. The authority and power of heaven meets the authority and power of people. And what happens is amazing. What becomes of the stone with its seal on it? It's rolled aside and it becomes a chair for the angel. Verse two, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This won't prevent the work of God, but it's a great chair and I'm gonna sit on it and I'm gonna declare what's happening here to everyone who arrives. What happens to these battle-hardened soldiers seeing brutal realities in war, hand-to-hand combat, the worst kind of war was in their history and their time. Verse four, and for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. Just a mere reflection of the glory of God in this heavenly being renders these battle-hardened soldiers like dead men, full of fear, incapable. And what about that seal representing the full power and authority and might of the Roman Empire? Well, there's an earthquake and the ro- it's ignored and the stone is rolled away and the seal is broken. And in that moment, the authority of heaven declares, we are the ultimate authority. And at that time, the, the, the greatest human empire of the time, the greatest authority of the time is just discarded and rolled aside and the seal is broken. And what does that reveal to us about Jesus? What it reveals to us about Jesus is that as he walked the road of the cross and the, the authorities of the time said, you, by our authority, you are on trial. By our authority, you are condemned to be crucified. By our authority, we will mock you and laugh at your claim to be king and have authority here. By our authority, we will command you to be beaten and flogged. By our authority, we will command you to carry your cross to your death. By our authority, we will nail you to the cross. And by our authority, we will make sure that nothing happens concerning your body. 
And what this moment reveals that it was never by their authority. And what was actually taking place is that Jesus was acting in meekness. And he was saying, by my authority, you put me on trial. By my authority, you beat me. By my authority, I carry this cross to my death. By my authority, you hang me on this tree. And by my authority, you put me in a tomb. And by my authority, I break that seal. That's what was actually happening in that moment. And there is something incredibly beautiful about the meekness of Jesus that in any moment along that journey, he could have said, enough. Clicked his fingers and creation would have ceased to exist and he would have been completely just in that as its creator. And he withholds that. As the creator, in this very moment, the air that we're breathing is a gift from him. And Jesus would breathe his last breath while giving breath to those who would crucify him. So that even those who crucify him, like that centurion, could encounter him and find themselves declaring, despite themselves, truly, this man was the son of God. God withholds the full power of heaven and willingly goes to a cross so that people could encounter him. We're in Galatians and Paul says he loved us and he loved you and gave himself for you. That's what that moment was. I love you, I will be beaten. I love you, I will be mocked. I love you, I will hang on a cross. I love you, I will give myself for you. And you see that pride that I spoke of earlier, the, the Bible doesn't mince its words. It says all of us fall short of the glory of God and are deserving of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, which is why Jesus needed to go to the cross. And the seal upon every single human heart is guilty and condemned. And the enemies of God love to keep it that way and love to remind us of that. And they love to think that they have the, the enemies of God and our sin, love to say, we have the authority. These guys are guilty, they're condemned, they deserve it. There's nothing you can do to change where they, what their soul deserves, it is sealed, guilty and condemned. And as Jesus and the power of heaven breaks open the seal on Easter Sunday, Jesus is saying, none of you have the final word over any soul, I do. And anyone who would come to the person of Jesus in faith and believe that he is who he says he is and has done what he says he's done, Jesus breaks open that seal and seals you with his authority and speaks an entirely new word over your life. Loved, rescued, redeemed, forgiven, son, Daughter, mine. That's the power of the resurrection. Jesus has the final say. That is good news. That is good news. And there's a great irony in this moment, isn't there? That as the authorities of the time try to set the stage that no false resurrection can happen, what they actually end up doing is set the stage perfectly for the power of God to be at work and on display. 
No one can go, oh, these women overcame those soldiers and rolled back the stone and rescued the body of Jesus. No one. It would be an absurd claim. If anything, their best efforts stand as an evidence that the resurrection of Jesus had nothing to do with men and people and everything to do with God and his power. But even after this moment, even after these incredible events, there are two claims that come out of the tomb. One that Jesus was a fraud and one that Jesus was everything he said he was. What is the claim of the tomb? Let's finish by reading verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the God went into the city and told the chief priests all that they had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This moment happens in my house often between Layla and Nathan. Layla loves sometimes to see what bad behavior will look like. So sometimes she'll take a pen and you can just see in her eyes that she now wants to draw on the walls. And I'll walk in at the critical moment, I'll be like, Layla, don't even think about drawing on those walls. And you can just see the internal turmoil. But I really wanna see what a marker looks like on the walls. I really, really wanna see that. And she's like, oh. She drops her good, sidles up next to Nathan. Nathan, you do it. <laughs> I'll give you one of my toys. You do it. And the bribery and corruption happens at the youngest of ages. It's literally the moment happening here. Tell the lie and we'll give you as much money as that requires. Just don't ever let the facts of this moment get out. It would ruin us. And it's so interesting that, uh, I just love the account, it's like some of the soldiers returned to the city. Now I don't know if some of them remained to like secure the tomb and everything that had gone on, or if they were still recovering from being rendered dead by the angel, I'm not sure. Like they're still trying to gather themselves, but some of them stay, some of them go back to the city. And it's interesting that they don't go back to their, their superior officer or to Pilate, who's actually their command of chain, their, their chain of command probably out of fear, knowing that the tomb's been tampered with, Jesus' body's not there, they're gonna be executed for dereliction of duty. And they return to these religious leaders, maybe some of them going, well, this was clearly a, a religious reality. This, this is clearly something to do with God. Maybe they got better answers than our people, but probably more out of fear. And they go back to the chief priests and the elders and they say, this is what took place, what must we do? And again, it is so sad that the very people of God who had the word of God and knew the ways of God and, and who had been speaking of this for centuries miss it. And they would choose self. Pride is a scary thing because it prevented them from even just asking the question, what if? They didn't even allow themselves to pause long enough to go, hold on guys. What if this is all true? What would this mean? Maybe we should consider this. They denied all the miracles of Jesus. They denied what the, the power of his death. They denied now the power of his resurrection, even though they'd set the stage for not being able to be falsified. 
And in all of that, they never once stopped to ask the question, what if? What if this is true? And all they could see was an empty tomb and a threat to their power and authority as leaders. And in contrast, sorry, I'm trying to find a quote. <laughs> and in contrast, you have these disciples and these women who would go on to spend their entire lives declaring, it happened. This is what happened. And there was no money involved. And in all the scandal of this, they would end up giving their lives, declaring the resurrection happened. Charles Colson was involved in the Watergate scandal in America and subsequently became a Christ follower. And this is what he says about the resurrection. I know the resurrection and the scandal of the resurrection that we see taking place here. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. But the ultimate reason that the scandal would not work, the ultimate reason that paying off the guards would not work, is that they didn't realize that the, the declaration of the tomb, the message of the tomb, the claim of the tomb, is not simply that the tomb is empty, but that Jesus has risen, that Jesus is alive that you can meet him, that you can encounter him, that you can know him, that you can enjoy him, that you can have a relationship with him. That's the message of the tomb. Not that, Jesus, not that the tomb is empty. Not that, oh, we didn't find the body. Jesus must have been who he said he was. No, it's the exact opposite. We found the body and it's living and when you can know him and you can encounter him, which is what made the woman so excited, the two Marys in this account, verse five. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, that fear being awe and wonder and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. What made these disciples so excited and so full of hope and so full of wonder was not that they saw an empty tomb. That was just a moment. That was just a moment where they go, could this be true? And they ran from the empty tomb and as they're running from the empty tomb to tell the other disciples that the tomb is empty, they encountered Jesus himself. And they fall, I love the moment, Jesus like, greetings. I mean, everything he's been through, everything they've been through is like greetings. It's like, did you ever doubt? Did you ever doubt? How could you doubt? I told you this would happen. Why are you so surprised to see me? And they fall down and they touch his resurrected body, his feet, and they worship him as God. Truly, this man is the son of God. 
And this is what transformed history. This is what transformed me. This is what transformed everyone in this room who claims to be a Christ follower. Not that the tomb was empty, but they've encountered Jesus for themselves. They've experienced his power at work in them. The church has become what the church is because Jesus is alive and powerfully at work in this world. We're in the book of Galatians. And you'll remember a few weeks ago how we looked at the life of Paul, how he hated the church, killed the members of the church and hated the message of the empty tomb. And one day he would encounter Jesus for himself and he would become one of the greatest declarers of the resurrected Jesus and the good news of his gospel. And therefore Lee Strobel says this, Strobel says this, Paul himself says that he was converted to a follower of Jesus because he had personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. So we have Jesus' resurrection attested by friend and foe alike, which is very significant. This community is what it is by the grace of God and the goodness of God. We celebrate the bread and the juice as a reflection of what Jesus achieved in his death and resurrection as those who have had one seal broken, one of condemnation and guilt, and a new one placed upon us, beloved sons and daughters of God. And that happened because we encountered the person of Jesus. Now, if you're one of those people who got dragged along you're one of those people who find yourself coming to Easter after Easter after Easter. I want to release you from religious activity. If Easter is simply a time that you have to come to and hear about an empty tomb for the 60th time, I'm worried that that's going to shrink your soul and make you cold to the true message of who Jesus is. I want to release you from doing that. But I also want to warmly invite you this morning to hear that the message is not about a tomb, but about a person that you can know and enjoy. And when you encounter the person of Jesus, you will know because like these disciples, like these women, your heart will be filled with awe and wonder and your soul will do anything but shrink. It will start to expand And you will start to understand that the person of Jesus was the very thing that your soul was made for, long for and thirst for. And you will experience what you have never experienced before, the joy and the delight of the Father in your life. And so I don't invite you to an empty tomb. I don't invite you to a movie that you've watched many times. I invite you to the person of Jesus this morning. And I would invite you to join us week in and week out as we understand who he is and what he's done. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna watch the testimony of someone in this community. We could have picked anyone's testimony, but we picked Sai's testimony, just of what it looks like and feels like to encounter the person of Jesus. My name is Sai Nasenaka, and this is my story. I grew up in a family of five and I was the youngest and We grew up with an alcoholic and often violent father. He brought a lot of anxiety and trauma into our lives until my parents divorced when I was 12. I practiced Hinduism because that's what my family believed. Until things changed up when my elder sister was the first to come to faith. She came home to us and told us about this God that she had met. And it really 
confused me and made me quite curious because I thought faith was just something you were given and inherited by from your parents. I remember my second elder sister um, after that sister being very upset uh, about my sister coming and speaking this truth and this gospel and she was very resistant but a friend of hers actually took her to common ground after a run she sort of said hey can you come through to church with me i'm going to be late and she heard the gospel for the first time and was moved by it and subsequently heard god saying that he's her father and then she became this amazing evangelist and like came and told us all about god and i was so shocked by this because she was not you know interested in jesus when i moved to cape town to study this was the opportunity she'd been waiting for to show me her god and to be honest, when I first came to Church at Common Ground, I wasn't completely sold. I didn't understand this God who was offering His grace for free. It, it didn't make any sense to me. And I wondered, what did I have to do? The simplicity of the gospel confused me so much, coming from a space of understanding karma and good and right and getting what you put into the world. But this God's offer was for free and it blew my mind. Um, I knew that He was God. Three months in, I remember seeing that this was the one true God but I couldn't believe his offer was free. Eventually God revealed to me that he's God and he gets to decide how things work. That's what it means for God to be God. And I had to play by his rules. And he says that his son can die for my life and I can receive this grace for free. I realized that I couldn't close the gap between myself and God. And I really needed Jesus Christ to come and die for my sins so that that gap could be closed. Remarkably, while I was coming to faith, my mother was having a very similar experience in Durban. She had called me after my first experience at church and she'd wondered how did it go and whether she should also check things out as she had passed one that day. And I said, definitely, you should totally check it out. We can go on this journey together. And I remember us sharing calls on a Sunday, just saying, what do you think of the sermon? Oh, this God is very interesting. This is so different from anything we've ever known. So God has deeply changed me and my biological family but I can't tell you about the amazing grace that he has shown me through my spiritual family at Common Ground. In my story, I grew up without a father who I could ask for wisdom and guidance. By coming to faith and learning of my heavenly father, I've really had that completely turned around for me. I remember a day when I was driving back from church and it was just such a faithful moment. All these thoughts came into my mind of just how I changed, how I used to be this way and now I'm this way. I used to be like that. I used to be timid and now I'm more bold. I used to be like this and now I'm like that. And I wondered, why was I so different? And I just felt God saying to me, that's because you're my son and I'm raising you. I'm truly your father. That's what it means for me to be your father, is that I raise you and I love you and I come alongside you and I change you and I make you more like me. Just recently, my mom, after 10 years of knowing him, decided to be baptized and be obedient to his word. And it was just such a moment of highlighting to me how God never leaves us the way he finds us. He changes our lives from the inside out.